This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, June 23rd. I'm Patrick Sai at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Dennis Olson talks about the recently passed Farm Bill. Steve Supan participates in the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development. Garrett Ibrahim explains the challenges facing Somali immigrants. And Don Arnosti leads a recent study on biomass harvesting. study finds that harvesting biomass for forests could reduce the cost of fire prevention management and help fuel renewable energy facilities. We sat down with the study's lead author, Don Arnosti, director of IATP's forestry program, to find out how the study came about, what were the key findings, and what lessons can be drawn from the research and moving forward. The federal government put um, a biomass utilization grant program together, and, and that actually came about when Congress uh, pushed back at the Forest Service because uh, every year there's massive fires out west and the Forest Service runs to Congress and says we need X tens of millions of dollars more. And some of the Congress people were a little bit frustrated by saying isn't there anything you can do in a prevention manner so that you're not always running here at the last minute saying the forest is on fire we need some money. And so that's why Congress, working with the Forest Service, said, let's put some money out there so that people can work to do some of this fire prevention, forest thinning work, and we're not always just paying for disasters. In a sense, our report has dozens of recommendations, including in areas that we didn't know we'd be investigating when we started this study. And it's really important to get most things right, or this will not be accomplished. The people who are managing the land, that is the Forest Service or a state forester, or if you're a private landowner, you have to think differently than timber. This is not the same thing as large trees going off for big checks to paper mills. These are small trees and brush, which are probably not gonna pay for themselves even to come out of the woods you need to have an additional reason or two or three why you want to have this material removed, not just making money. It may be about reducing fire hazards, it may be about improving wildlife habitat or restoring an ecosystem, but you need to have multiple reasons to be doing this. And then under that scenario, the landowner needs to be thinking that it's going to cost me more to remove this material from the land that I'm going to get for it from a biomass energy market. Some of the early people into the biomass energy markets have been projecting free material because at the beginning of the industry, there is a lot of waste material out there. There's material that isn't being used or people with big piles of wood left over after a commercial logging site, and they're happy to give it away if you just take it away. But that is not a long-term strategy, and they need to get their mind around 
paying a fair price for the value of the product. The people who manage the energy market have to think about it. The people who manage the land have to think about it. The loggers have to think differently because they're targeting smaller trees and different trees. This research took place in northeast Minnesota. What kind of lessons does it have for other parts of the country? And, and what do you think is the next stage now after this research is being put out? Well, I think many of the lessons are already being applied, and I think it has a lot of applicability around the country. For example, a general lesson is that this woody biomass material should be utilized relatively close to where it's found growing and where it's harvested. Our studies indicated 100 miles or less under the market conditions we were analyzing was the only economic radius, and, and less is much better. So 25 or 50 miles is a good zone. So we're really talking about local supplies and local markets making a lot of sense. That is applicable nationwide. Another thing that fits in with that is you don't want to build too large a demand. You don't want, a, if it's a power plant or it's an ethanol facility or whatever it may be, you don't want to size it bigger than its sustainable feedstock within that relatively short distance. So unlike many industrial facilities in our country, we think you know big is good and giant is better. We think the, the resource and the feedstock ought to drive the sizing. Great, thanks very much. You're welcome. Spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it Nearly six months behind schedule, Congress finally passed the new Farm Bill which will set U.S. farm policy for the next five years. This monster piece of legislation includes sections on farm subsidies, energy, nutrition, and food aid. We sat down with IATP's Dennis Olson to find out more about the good, the bad, and the ugly in the U.S. Farm Bill. Well, I think some of the good things are some small incremental steps forward on a number of fronts. Bioenergy is one of those fronts where we were able to get past a bioenergy crop assistance program. Basically, what that program would do is start providing farmers with incentives to start shifting their crop production to the next generation feedstocks for bioenergy. Ideally, those feedstocks will uh, meet uh, sustainability standard and will include things like native perennial prairie grasses, things like switchgrass, uh, those types of things that would be more sustainable than trying to meet our ethanol demand with corn. We, uh, we got some contract poultry grower reforms to get rid of some of the worst abuses that have been going on with this increasing concentration in corporate power, especially in the poultry sector. One of the reforms that we got was that farmers cannot be forced into binding arbitration by these companies, which has been an abuse. And the big problem with that is that it denies farmers the right of due process of discovery. And so this allows farmers to have the option to go to court 
rather than to simply be pushed into one of these binding arbitration situations, which have become increasingly challenging for farmers. The commodity part of it may be the most disappointing, and probably from whatever perspective you uh, come from on this. And unfortunately, it really became a red herring that dominated the debate in the sense that as we are in this ethanol boom, the issue over whether we're going to be spending $24 billion or some such number on subsidies, for the moment anyway, has become a moot point because prices have gone up so high that the counter-cyclical payments, which make up a majority of those farm payments, are no longer being paid because they're only paid when prices are low. The whole rationale to go in and shift this money from commodity program to other programs sort of fell apart. And unfortunately, I think it polarized the debate unnecessarily and that there were other solutions that were much more fundamental that we, I think, could have gotten greater agreement on if the whole debate had not been so dominated by the subsidy debate. The packer ban would have prohibited big packing companies from owning feedlots and live stock and basically selling them to themselves in a vertically integrated situation. It would have barred that from happening. And that failed. And that's very unfortunate, especially for cattle producers in the United States right now, because there is now a move by a company called JBS Brazil that wants to acquire national beef and Smithfield beef packers. If this merger were to go through, the top three companies in the United States, beef packing companies, would control 91% of the market up from 79%. So it would just make this problem of market concentration that much worse. And related back to the Packer ban, one of the subsidiaries of Smithfield is Five Rivers Cattle Feeding Company, which is the biggest cattle feeder in the country. And so if they had passed the Packer ban, that might have been a handle to try to break up some of this concentration. And unfortunately, the Packers twisted enough arms and won that victory in the Farm Bill. I think that's one example of where we pick up from the Farm Bill and move forward. And uh, there's some really pressing problems out there. Great. Thanks very much. Sure. Experts from around the world published a groundbreaking global assessment of agriculture, focusing on how to respond to the current food crisis and the increasing effects of climate change. The International Assessment of Agriculture Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development was coordinated by the United Nations and World Bank. The report's recommendations call for major changes, including greater support for small-scale farms, less emphasis on expensive technology, and more crop diversification. IATP's Steve Supan was the lead author for the Policy Options chapter of the report, and we sat down with him to learn more. The International Assessment for Agricultural Science and Technology for Development started as an idea at the Johannesburg Summit on Sustainable Development in 2002. What governments and intergovernmental organizations were interested in doing was, for the first time ever, to do a peer-reviewed process of what agriculture science and technology was doing for development, obviously, and, and, and they wanted to include all stakeholders. 
the, the first the model initially at least was the international panel on climate change for commenting on different research drafts and so we were required to, to respond in some way or another to every comment received and the the secretary of the ag assessment was on the international panel uh, of climate change he came with this this background and then suddenly found well Obviously, this model of agricultural production is not sustainable. The resources used, both transportation and inputs, and the cost of land and water were not sustainable. And so the traditional emphasis on uh, investment research for agricultural production technologies was something that the report declared could not continue. And for some researchers, this was a big shock. Uh, because they weren't used to the idea of actually having, as the economists say, to internalize all the costs of production, including the environmental ones. So that was a, a very big message. One of the other messages, I think, that, that came out pretty clearly was that, um, and, and, I, and I have to, I should first preface my remark by saying, there was a, a, a hope that, that the report would justify more investment by governments in agricultural research. And there was an understanding about what that research should be, and it was research on production technology. We shifted that investment model to take a look at such issues as, well, okay, Africa's losing 40% of its harvest because they don't have post-harvest technologies. They don't have simple things like drying sheds. They don't have more complicated and expensive things like industrial refrigeration units. You know, how would that change the need for increasing production? How could we lessen the burden on the land? Um, how could water be used more efficiently? And so on and so forth. So those were, those were pretty uh, important messages overall, I think. And it took a while to negotiate those. The summary for decision makers was rewritten, I think, a half dozen times at least. And then the governments partially rewrote it um, at their meeting in Johannesburg in mid-April. 57 governments uh, out of the 60 who were originally involved with the project have signed on. The United States is not among them, although there were a lot of concessions made to try to get the support of the United States. I think the big challenge now is how do you implement a report of analysis and policy options for decision makers? This report is going to be rolled out at various international events like the upcoming Food and Agriculture Conference on Food Security and Bioenergy in mid-June. And there, I think both governments and private organizations will be challenged to take a look at some of the policy options and say, not just how much is this going to cost, but what is the price going to be of inaction? IATP will host a Rural African Summit for Africans who have migrated to the U.S. and now live in rural areas in the upper Midwest. These new immigrants face a number of challenges, including dealing with a new language, a much different climate, and cultural isolation. 
IATP's Garrett Ibrahim is working with African communities in the upper Midwest, and we sat down with him to learn more. Why are people from Somalia leaving Somalia and coming here? What are the factors there that are bringing them here? And the reason as to why is uh, it's unsafe back home because there's this big civil war that happened that uh, destroyed the nation of Somalia. In that regard, people have to look for safe heaven. The lucky ones have got the opportunity to come to the United States. There are many still who are disadvantaged in the refugee comes back in Africa. I think uh, one of the best things that is attracting the Somali community in rural Minnesota or rural Midwestern states is uh, the employment. Basically, the employment is a key factor that is giving an attraction to the communities. One other reason is, uh, is most relatives who are settled here, they have a families who live in rural communities. An example like St. Cloud. Within St. Cloud neighborhood, there are food processing plants. Genio, one of them, Taki uh, and the chicken processing plants, such as Golden Plum. With having no skills, it gives them the impression at least to get a place to start from. It's something with a low wage, but nevertheless, it makes them to have a start, make an employment whereby they can have that, uh, that energy, whereby they can build uh, their career in a sense whereby they can have a place to say that they can refer to or have a regime build up. Those are the two major things that is giving the Somali communities to be where they are at the rural communities. What are some of the challenges facing Somali immigrants when they come to rural communities here in the U.S.? Uh, the first obstacle is language. Language is a key barrier. Uh, that is the first obstacle the Somali community to do face is the interaction with people, how to deal with people and how to speak with people and have a good understanding of each other. That's the first obstacle. Part of uh, the Human uh, Services Department's plan is to give the Somali community 20 hours ESL classes. The second thing is the climate. Somalia is kind of like California type weather all year round. There's no snow. There's nothing called winter over there. The challenges are very many uh, because we have a lot of dropouts in school. And there's the age factor. Uh, placements here are done by age and placements back home used to be done by what you know. Gang problem is another key factor. And gangs are fomenting because the dropout is very high. There are one other issues I have seen that most people kind of like low-income people. And uh, they would like at least uh, to help themselves and be achievable in getting things right. Right now, we are just in the first 15 years of our life in, in Minnesota or in the United States. Probably in 10 years' time, people, things will be different. Acculturation and integration will be a key thing. The young generations who are here today will be out of college. The other thing I see is there is uh, a relationship between back home and here. Uh, there are many who are here and after they stay two or three years, they try to move back home. Uh, it's, it becomes hard for them. But then there is that intercultural and inter-relationship with the people who are back in the refugee camps or back home uh, is another thing. One other good thing I've seen is a lot of remittance. Uh, a lot of people who do live here, do work here in rural Minnesota, do provide for the many who are back home. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you.
Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. The music on the program was Deo by Tall Fiddler, New York by Cat Power, Double Dutch by Connie Price and the Keystones, Murd Street and Coffee Cold by Galt McDermott. I'm Patrick Sai. Thanks for listening. Thank you.